Welcome to the Events Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Taylor, and each week I talk with event professionals about how they plan, promote, and run their events. We help you build your events empire by growing your business around live events. Whether you're running small meetups or conferences, trade shows, and concerts, we focus on finding actionable tips that you can use straight away. This podcast is sponsored by EventsFrame. Check it out over at eventsframe.com. Make the switch from Eventbrite today to our amazing ticketing and registration system with no ticket fees. It integrates with all the major payment gateways such as Stripe, PayPal, and Braintree. And we also have the best email integrations out there, including MailChimp, Zapier, Infusionsoft, Aweber, Drip, and many, many more. You can use our versatile website builder or embed tickets directly in your own site. We've got thousands of live events on EventsFrame, ranging from small community meetups to large trade shows and conferences. EventsFrame is especially good for anyone wanting to run multiple events, as you can host an an unlimited number of events on your EventsFrame account. Most ticketing systems charge you a minimum of 3% of the ticket price, but we just have a flat low fee with no ticket fees and no restrictions. There's genuinely no system out there that is cheaper than EventsFrame. So head on over to eventsframe.com for a free one-month trial. And we also have a special offer just for podcast listeners. Email me at dan at eventsframe.com, D-A-N at eventsframe.com with the subject line podcast, and I'll send you a special discount code. So that's all. Let's get on to the interview. Uh, I'm recording this on Thursday, 31st of January in Prague. It's been a super busy start to the year for me. I'm just back from London. There's a huge um, education technology trade show called BET, B-E-T-T, which I'm sure a lot of you know. And I was involved in that. It was good. We had about 15 people working for us at BET. We were helping Google run a couple of things in the teaching theater and apply digital skills. We had people helping out on the Acer, the Acer laptop stand, helping with the Chromebooks. And we were running an event uh, called the Anywhere School at um, Google HQ. So so super busy. It was great for a few things. It was, it, it was great to, to be running multiple events at the same time. It was, a, it was an interesting logistical exercise. And it was also fantastic to see a huge trade show like BET, which has you know tens of thousands of people come. It really is impressive. I've never, never been involved in running an event on that scale. And I'm looking forward to interview some more people who do. So this week's podcast interview, we're actually going to reissue an interview we did back in 2018. It was really popular, but what's happened is we've got a lot of new listeners to the podcast uh, come on in, in January 2019, and this is one most people haven't seen. So it's an interview with a guy called Chris Robb, who wrote a book called Mass Participation Sports Events. It's kind of the Bible on how to run big sporting events. And he's a really fascinating guy because it shows kind of like what I call an events journey, how he he kind of evolved. He started off running an event at school to pay for the school running track. He went to Australia. He was originally from South Africa, but he went to Australia. He was involved in the Sydney Olympics where he was a road manager. He founded the Singapore Marathon and he actually sold the Singapore Marathon to Ironman, which is super interesting to see someone who's founded an event and sold it. And people should check out our earlier interview. We actually interviewed a couple of people who were involved in, in the sale of businesses. So check out, check out these as well. So really interesting interview. Hope you enjoy it. Uh, please, if you like it, give us a review on iTunes. Uh, it really, really helps us and helps us get up the charts and, and gets us on more people's radar. And sign up for the newsletter. Our podcast comes out every Friday. We also have the newsletter come out every Friday and it has the podcast and it also has some interesting tips, tricks, videos, things we found around the web which are really useful for event professionals. So subscribe to the newsletter and I hope you enjoy the interview. Hello and welcome to the events podcast. Uh, today I'm delighted to be talking to Chris Robb. He's the author of the book Mass Participation Sports Events. He's a highly sought-after speaker. He runs a lot of events. He's lived all over the world. He's started a company which he sold to Ironman. So really interesting for someone who's run events in a lot of countries and, and especially for me and large sporting events. So a huge thanks and welcome, Chris. Hi, Dan. Uh, good to speak. Thanks for having me. Really looking forward and excited to talk. Yeah, it's fascinating looking at your LinkedIn profile and your website and stuff. You've, you've just done so much, it's tough to sort of know where to start, you know. But um, do you want to start just with a bit of your, your background and, and where you grew up and, and how you kind of went on to run your, your first events? 
Yeah, great. Thanks. Look, I've I've been incredibly lucky. I think I've, I'm one of those uh, those people whose uh, whose job's been his passion nearly 35 years now in the what we call the mass participation industry. So I grew up on a farm in Zimbabwe, pretty pretty poor to be honest. Part of that was in the midst of an independence war. As a 14, 15 year old, I used to sleep with a, a gun next to my bed. Wow. The day my dad would kind of walk from from our front gate to the bitumen road to check that landmines hadn't been laid overnight and various other things that happened in a war, which were, were amazing. Gave me an incredible foundation in terms of, you know, the value of community and, and comradeship and, you know, resilience and, and many other things, which are, are really relevant to, I think, you know, the sports industry generally and certainly the mass participation industry. They're so often about communities. I had the opportunity to organize my, my first event at the age of 16. So I was a 800, 1500 meter runner and Back in those days, we used to run on the old-fashioned cinder tracks, and, and the cinders had, had basically washed off our track, and we were literally like pounding our legs on, I guess, concrete hard mud clay. So really? I, I decided decided I'd organize a little fun run and, uh, you know, got a few hundred people out and, and just got a real buzz from, you know, making an impact in the community, the entrepreneurial side of it, the operational side of did, it. And, did you charge money and, for this event? Was it just a free Yeah, event? we charged money. No, we raised, you know, in those days, a, a fair amount of money, several several hundred dollars from memory. It's, it's you know, it's many, many years ago now. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, enough essentially, you know, the headmaster was in shock when uh, we, we walked into his office with this massive bag of money that we'd collected. And, right. and I think they'd kind of thought, well, what do we do now? And, and, and so for, for a couple of months, we were rolling cinders into the track and, you know, m- mission accomplished in many ways. And, you know, I guess little did I know that that was going to lay a foundation for, you know, what's turned into a, a nearly 35-year career in, in the mass participation industry that's taken me all over the world, allowed me to literally impact the lives of millions of people and had many, many incredible experiences. Wow. So, so what was next? What did you do? Did, did you leave Zimbabwe after the independence war or how did, or where did you, did you stay there? Yeah. So I, I finished school there. I sat in my, my A-level geography class listening to the results of the election that brought Mugabe to power right. um, and, and then went on to university in South Africa where I was able to immerse myself even further into the into the industry so i i i was as i said still an 800 1500 meter runner but quite quickly became the president of the uni running club and we had a portfolio of events so i had this amazing opportunity to be part of this i guess kind of incubator learning how to put on events whilst while studying by the time i was in my third year at uni i was running a little business on the side out of my spare room sort of running a branch office for a, a, an event promotion company from there went off and did a, a bunch of travel once i finished university and, and ultimately you know near, nearly 30 odd years ago now immigrated to australia right um, arrived in australia with fifteen thousand dollars in my pocket and with still haven't lost the accent amazingly as well yeah yeah i I got this kind of mix i you know people ask me you know am am i aussie am i kiwi am i zimbabwean south african so it's yeah uh, yeah, there's still still elements of all of it there wonderful to arrive in australia young and full of enthusiasm and set up my my own event management company and had some incredible experiences building events in australia and, and i think you know still one of my career highlights was being the road event supervisor at the sydney olympics sorry to interrupt like, what, what, what yeah. did you do so you set up this company like what how did you start like what what kind of things were you doing when you say you were you were kind of an event management company like what what does that actually mean in reality how were you making money in south africa i'd been involved in a in a concept a corporate relay basically so teams of four or five people running five kilometers each in, in a relay with a whole bunch of hospitality and party and stuff around it. And the concept was huge. I mean, we worked on one event in Durban, which had 10,000 participants in it and, and a number of other big ones. And I thought, wow, this concept's not being done in Australia. Let me give it a crack here. So I went along to South African Airways, who obviously knew of the concept in South Africa, uh, got them on board as my first sponsor, delivered the first event, which was really on, on a shoestring with a few hundred teams. And then went and pitched it to Deloitte and, and ended up turning it into a, a national series. So we had Sydney, Brisbane, Melbourne, Canberra, and a couple of thousand teams participating in this event. And that kind of laid a foundation to, to do another n- number of other different events. We had a, a, a lunchtime legend. So that was around like be a legend in your lunch hour and, uh, and people playing corporate sports. So we had about, uh, I think it was 
2,000 people every week that would play six-a-side soccer, rugby, volleyball, touch football in the various parks. We had seven different locations going around around Sydney. And slowly this little business grew to the stage where I was, you know, approached to be the, the road event supervisor at the Olympics. And I was, you know, working two jobs, literally working probably 18-hour days. You know, I'd go to my office first thing in the morning, spend a couple of hours there, get a taxi into the Olympics, work there all day long, go home, grab some takeaway, go to the gym, go and sit in my office for a few more hours and go and grab five or six hours sleep and start all over again the next day. But, you know, I was so driven by the fact that I was I was living my dream, living my passion. And, and the industry has, as I said, delivered many incredible highs. Some of those things are what I call money can't buy experiences. So, you know, sitting on the the lead vehicle of the of the Olympic marathon going through the streets of of Sydney with you know hundreds of thousands of people cheering the runners on is you know something I'll I'll, I'll never forget. Yeah, it's, um, it's been many of those. It's interesting. Like I think when I talk to a lot of people on this podcast and just my own experience as an entrepreneur as well, like most people like they work crazy hours when they're starting a business. And I think some people nowadays they don't want to do it. You know, they've read the four hour work week. I mean, I, I love that book. I, I don't know if you've read it, but it's, it's a great yeah, book. But, yeah, but great the reality book. is I don't know anyone who's built any business of size who hasn't, you know, put in kind of grueling hours in, in the beginning. I'm sure there's people who haven't, but I haven't met them. You know, that's the reality. Yeah, no, no, me, me neither. <laughs> yeah. now, now what, this is a good time to like, you mentioned about getting sponsors and, and, you know, running these corporate events. Like it's probably a good time to like, what, what are these like mass participation sporting events, corporate events? Is there a difference? And, and what's the business model? Cause you talked about money from sponsors, money from attendees. What, you know, what, how does that break down? And could you just give us an overview of what is this industry and, and, and what the kind of business model is or, or is there several business models? Yeah, look, it's, it's a great question, Dan. So, I mean, you know, the industry, and it's, and it's getting harder and harder to find what's mass participation. You know, going to a concert is mass participation. There's yep. tens of thousands of people, a political demonstrations, mass participation. But, you know, in, in the space that I've kind of operated in, I've, I've kind of identified it as four main verticals. So big, big running events, cycling events, triathlon events, and more recently, the, the new genres of, of obstacle races, your Tough Mudders, your Spartans. Yeah, my, and those my wife's really things. into those, actually. I've done a couple. Of, that's huge now in Europe, especially. I, it's massive. And, you know, in Asia, that whole industry is, is exploding. So as we were talking about before, I'm now based in, in, in Bali, but uh, it's, you know, it's, it's really exploding here. Yeah. Okay, but, so. you know, to get back to your question about then, you know, what, what's the business model? Um, you know, it's, to, to be honest, it's a fairly challenging business model. And I think there's a lot of people within the industry that kind of almost live from hand to mouth. They have what I call passion projects. Many of them never really turn them into profitable, sustainable businesses. You know, they're operated out of their spare room. It might be a husband and wife team. It might be a, a small organization. But the, the backbone of our industry is made up by lots and lots of small operators and a, and a handful of big and medium-sized operators. Right. And, 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 you know, the, the cost bases are increasing with increased compliance, venue availabilities, the whole security thing, you know, the, the Boston bombing as an example, well, well publicized. Um, and, 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 you know, the challenges are finding enough revenue streams that are sustainable within a, an increasingly competitive market. So, you know, sponsorship we spoke about, government grants, entry fee revenue from participants, um, merchandise, which is, is one which is fraught with danger. I, danger. I myself have been burnt on, on a couple of occasions with merchandise and I've seen many people, you know, overorder on stock or, you know, you, you have a, a rainy sure, day sure. and you get left with all that stock. Hospitality, um, you know, training programs and, and the like. So, you know, there's a handful of different revenue streams and they vary a lot, you know. So, so in Australia and, and, and most of your European and American markets, you generally attract a fairly significant entry fee and your, your sponsorship becomes cream. In Asia, where the disposable income is starting to, to, to increase as we get an emerging middle class, but still relatively low, your entry fee revenue is, is very low in the main in most, most Asian countries. So uh, you're absolutely dependent on significant sponsorship or significant government money, which makes the, the model even more, uh, I guess, tenuous because you, you can build, build an event for 10 years and your title sponsor decides they don't want to renew or there's an economic downturn and your event can become unviable overnight uh, yeah. as opposed to 
your your more advanced markets where you can rely fairly significantly on entry fee revenue. And, you know, say you lose a thousand people in entry fee, it's not such a crippling bro that it can destroy your 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 concept that you've worked ten years to build. Interesting. Yeah, I um. I met I met a guy. I, you probably even know him. He's an I forgot his name. He's an Italian guy. He runs the Prague Marathon, and, and he and he sounds like kind of what you say, how you described it. He's like an independent person. He he runs the Prague Marathon. He's got kind of the exclusive deal. He's built it up over years. Pretty sure he gets paid something from the city of Prague. You know, some kind of grant because mm-hmm. he promotes. It. It's kind of a big tourist thing for the city. It's not a not a charity event. You know, it's it's his business, uh, and he charges does all what you say. He has a lot of sponsors. Um, quite a high entry fee, so I think he's probably making most of his money on on, on the entry fee. But yeah, it's interesting seeing that because that kind of sounds like how you've described kind of a lot of people in the industry. Yeah, and look, he's done fantastic stuff, and, and met him in fairly short. The same guy, yeah. I met him at a conference in Malaysia a couple of years ago. Adidas is a big partner, and they've created yeah. that running hub around it. And you know, yeah, what, run, one of run, the run check it's called. They've got a whole, run, they've, got a, they've got a store, and they've got a whole operation. Yeah. And they run loads of events, small events, yeah. Yeah, amazing, and and you know a, a great a great case study to the industry because one of the the tricks that much of our industry misses, I believe, is is year round engagement with their participants. So your typical model is, hey Dan, entries for the marathon have opened, please sign up. You get a couple of emails with maybe a training program and some discounts of on, on your online store and whatever, and then you get your race day information and you turn up and you might get a post event you know email or, or some kind of communication with your results and a certificate, and then no one talks to you for six months until the same process starts all over again. Yeah, and, yeah. and you know there's and then see events going and spending a whole bunch of money in you know traditional in inverted commas and what's traditional these days marketing channels to try and attract new participants when they're not even speaking to this mountain of participants that they, they're standing on top of. Yeah, definitely. It's all, um, you know, the whole, all about, you know, using your, you know, having good things to offer to your email list and even, even, even using your kind of list of, of contacts, effectively giving them, giving them good information, giving them new events is something I think in every industry people miss that. I think people are getting much, much better on it though. Yeah, no, no, for sure. And, and, you know, it's a, it's increasingly challenging because, you know, email is becoming less and less used. So it's, you know, it's engaging, whether that be your social media channels or, you know, thing, things in Asia, for example, in many countries, WhatsApp is massive and people starting to communicate more through WhatsApp and, you know, sharing content through that and Messenger. And, you know, there's so many different platforms. You know, the fact that it can be so fragmented makes it quite challenging. Interesting. So that's fascinating. So how does it work with the charity aspect? Because a lot of these events are charity. And, and I guess... I'm wondering, is it the same business model and they agree to give a percentage to charity or is, it, is there, again, a big variation on how those events work? Yeah, there's, there's a huge variation of how they work. You know, you get your extremes like, for example, your London Marathon, which is massively oversubscribed and, uh, and people pay a premium to get a slot if they miss out on the ballot and they're their premium and their and their commitment is that they raise money for charity. In in other markets, charities put on their own events, so they take the commercial risk on on the P and L, and often end up getting burnt on it because they don't have the right resources to be able to deliver it and understand all the nuances of it. Um, and, and and then you know you, you you get situations where it'll be a, a commercial operator like myself who, who might decide that there's a charity benefit or charity beneficiary to the event and you know in my in my time in australia that would be you know the the kind of trade-off would be that the charity would provide you with x number of volunteers and you would give them x amount of contribution whether that was an agreed flat fee or whether it was a percentage of entry fee revenue or a flat fee per participant Uh, so there's lots of different models interestingly in asia the whole charity model is is very much in its infancy and I guess less popular. So you know, we, we had an example, the, the the Singapore Marathon. So my company for a number of years organized the Singapore Marathon, which at its at its peak was sixty thousand participants. Wow. And it, it had a, a an element of it, an Ekaden relay, which was six people in a team running a marathon distance in, in, in relays. And there were three hundred teams and they would sell out in a matter of hours. So with Standard Chartered, who's the title sponsor, we decided one year that we'd use that as our charity platform. So teams had to pay an entry fee, which I think was $300 from memory, and they had to make a commitment that between their six runners, they would raise $500 for a charity of their choice. So on a giving platform, they would, they would choose their charity and raise 500 
we got massive backlash on social media, people saying, how dare you force us to raise money for charity, albeit yeah, really. that we've given them the option to, to raise for their own charity. And that year, we, we only sold 230 of the 300 teams. So again, it's, you know, the lesson in that is, is, is across the industry and across the globe is that you need to be very conscious of what local precedents are and local culture and, and nuances. So often I see in our industry, people from other parts of the world arrive in Asia with a concept that's been successful in America or somewhere in Europe. And they just think because it's been successful there that it's going to work in Asia. And, and, and many, many people fall on their faces because they don't take into account and really understand the, the local nuances. It's interesting. And the charity thing as well, just, just generally the, the way the world's going, you know, there's much more kind of transparency demanded of things like that. And, you know, you hear about I mean, I mean, not necessarily sporting events, but I've heard about people running, you know, just charity balls and things like that. And quite a small percentage was given to charity. And now people are having to really disclose, like, when you say this is a charity event, what does that mean? Does it mean 30% of the ticket price is going to charity? And people are normally cool with it as long as it's like they, they don't feel like they've been duped somewhere, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So what? Yeah, really interesting detail. We'll get back to your story in a sec, but I'm curious about, you mentioned the Spartan races. I, I heard a podcast interview with a guy, I think it was Joe DeSena who started the Spartan race series, yeah. which is just like a, a juggernaut. Like there's, and there's a few of these now. There's a thing checked as the gladiator races and all these other ones. Like how, how where did, like, did people see this coming or did this just come from nowhere? This whole like, you know, obstacle racing and it's evolved rapidly as have some of those other genres, the, the, what we call mob races generally. So events that people participate in teams rather than individuals. So, you know, your color runs, your electric runs, yeah. uh, those kind of things. And, you know, a number of them have been faddish for one of a better word. So, you know, Color Run has grown hugely and it's declining in a number of markets, electric runs similar, and, you know, there end up being lots of kind of copycats of them. And, and you know, Spartan and Tough Mudder, you know, the two main players in that space, in some markets they continue to grow significantly, in other markets they they start to plateau and in some cases de decline a little bit as I understand it. So I think, you know, the consumer of today is constantly looking for something that's new, something that's different, want to have a, have a different experience. And, uh, you know, the, the, these have certainly taken the market by storm. And to answer your question, did people see them coming? I don't think to the degree that they've grown, people saw them coming and they've really opened the eyes to people of the, the possibility. But yeah, certainly, you know, the, the, the growth of, of Spartan is an incredible story. It's funny, like, the old, you know, I, I do CrossFit here in Prague, and it's funny that, like, you know, pre pre CrossFit, every you know, people would spend a fortune kidding out gyms to make them like spas, and and it turns out people want to work out in a prison, you know, like that's like yeah, it's, yeah. it's like, and and I, I I enjoy those races because I've I've done I've done a marathon and I've done a few half marathons, you know, I'm not a runner, it's just it's just a, a kind of one of us a good experience to do, you know, you train for it and you do it, and I, I loved I love the kind of the Spartan races and that whole you know the obstacle stuff and. It, the camaraderie it, it's good but yeah I'm, I'm curious I mean it, obviously everything reaches a peak I, you know it's, it can't keep growing forever and I'm, I'm sure like you say it's going to decline or is declining in, in some places yeah and I, you know I think that the great thing that Spartan have done is exactly what I was speaking about maybe 10 minutes back is their engagement their ongoing engagement their opportunity the opportunity that their their, their, their loyal followers have to to, to, to kind of step up in, in intensity and distances and those kind of things. They've built a, a great portfolio, as in many ways have Ironman. So, you know, you, you've got the, the, you know, the, the, the big thing is the, you know, the, the dream of going to Kona and participating in a world championship at the full distance. But you've got the, you know, the 70.3 and the 5150s and, you know, they, they even have the, the, the Iron Kids version. So built an ecosystem that people can aspire to and progress through, which I think is, is, is crucial. And that, that becomes harder for the, the more fatty type of thing. So, you know, is it a 5K or is it a 10K color run type of thing? It's, you know, it, there's not, not too much of a progression opportunity there. It's yeah. a daytime or a nighttime maybe. Those are some of the tweaks that seem to get made to it. But Spartan and Ironman have been able to build a brand that brings people in at different levels, entry level, progressing all the way through to the to the big challenges. Definitely. Well, that's a good time to, to jump back to your story because I know you have some, some history of Ironman. So you, you mentioned about, you know, started your business in Australia and, and were road manager for the Sydney Olympics marathon. Like, what did you do next? 
Yeah, so after the Olympics, I was, I was very fortunate that JP Morgan came along and, and ended up being one of my biggest clients in Australia with an event called the JP Morgan Corporate Challenge, which, uh, which was part of a, a global series that at, at that stage, I think, had been going 23, 24 years when they came to Australia. And um, essentially a corporate running event, a, a, a team event in as much as you would turn up with you know, any number of participants beyond four, you could have some companies had two, 300 of their staff participating. And it was kind of a unique concept and still is where everybody ran. And then afterwards, you made up your teams of either men, women or mixed teams based on how well people had done and tried to kind of out strategize the other companies in terms of who they were putting in their team and hugely popular. They decided that they, they wanted to expand in, into Asia. So they asked me to help them with a feasibility study. And we looked at Shanghai and Hong Kong. And ultimately, they chose to, to go to Singapore. And at that stage, the events industry was very, the mass participation events industry was very much in its infancy. And ultimately, went through a process and, 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 and weren't particularly comfortable with the RFPs that they'd had. And they asked me to consider setting up an office in Singapore to deliver their events. So, okay. you know, one wonderful opportunity to have a, a global brand like JP Morgan as an anchor client. I can't claim in any way that it was strategic. It was totally opportunistic and, you know, ended up being uh, being in that in, in, in Singapore for 15 years. I lived there for 10 years. Um, and, you know, the first five years I had my Australian office and, and, and my, my Singapore office, and I, I was commuting between the two of them. And then I landed a, a big seven-figure sponsorship to start a new cycling concept called Cycle Singapore, which I then grew, in, grew into a brand called Cycle Asia. And when I landed that, I, I moved to Singapore to manage the launch of that event, which grew to 11,500 cyclists in Singapore and, and events around the region. It's interesting. Like, I go to Asia a lot, I mean, uh, several times a year, and and I've never been to Singapore, which is the weirdest thing ever. I mean, I've I'm, I've been to Hong Kong, I mean, 50 times maybe. You know, it's like uh, I've, right. been, to, I've yeah. been to Bangkok all the time. Uh, Taiwan, I'm, I'm off to Taiwan again in December. I'm going again this year. And I don't know how it works. I've always planned to go to Singapore. Then something happens. And Singapore and Hong Kong are the two main business hubs of Asia. And I, I really want to visit. But uh, it's, it's going to happen next year. Um, and I, I run events. I mean, I run multiple events a year in Singapore. It's, it's kind of a weird history I've got with Singapore where I've never been there. But I do want to go. <laughs> It's, it's worth going. It's a wonderful city. I mean, you know, very easy to get around, very efficient, very clean, great place to do business, very supportive government. You know, pe people refer to Singapore as Asia light, I guess. It's, you that's, know, it's, that's, it's, that's it's, what I've heard. I mean, yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. A Asia in an armchair. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very functional. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a great place Which to is, do I mean, business. Hong, Hong, Kong's like, Hong Kong's like that, but it's got a bit more of an edge still, Hong Kong. Yeah, think, yeah, yeah. I, think. yeah, I, have, yeah. I mean, I haven't even been to Singapore, but just what I, what I base it on, you know, like it's... Yeah. It's, okay, cool. So, so, so what was next on, on you know, that? Yeah, so, so then, you know, start, started that business in Singapore and it was an incredibly challenging baptism. We did, I think, eight, nine months worth of planning for this event. We targeted to have about 3,000 participants. We ended up getting over 7,000 people register and eight days before the event, the Nickel Highway, which is one of Singapore's main arterial roads, collapsed as a result of some tunneling that was happening for a, a new uh, underground railway line. And tragically, four people lost their lives. And we literally sat around for, for nearly seven days, not knowing whether we were going to have an event or not. We got the green light to go ahead at, at midnight, standing on a street corner the, the, the night before. You know, we were due to have the event. Event flagged off. It was crazy. All hands on deck to do the, the final bit of setup standing on the Padang, which is this beautiful cricket cricket for, or field in the heart of Singapore, looking at the city skyline, watching the prize presentations happening, thinking, wow, this is just just amazing. When I got a tap on my shoulder to look around and, and, and see the medical director standing next to me, he'd come to tell me that someone had died of a heart attack. Tragic in so many ways, just a real kind of baptism of fire well, welcome to asia with your first event we yes. sat in the set we sat in the debrief and the, and the lady from new york who'd been you know running the series since inception you know started the debrief by saying congratulations you guys have hit every speed bump in year one that most people take 20 years to hit and you've successfully overcome them so it was you know massively challenges but so many incredible learnings you know different things about, you know, when someone dies in Asia, it's very different to, to, to what happens in, in Western cultures and, you know, learning to work with uh, in, in partnership in, a, in, a, in what was a national crisis. You know, our, our little challenge of making sure that our 
running event happened was completely insignificant compared to, you know, dealing with people dying in a, in a tunnel collapse. So, you know, recognising that, you know, we have to sit on the sidelines and wait our turn and, and understand the, the challenges that the government was facing and everything that went around that. So, you know, the real value of partnership and patience and contingency planning and crisis planning and crisis management were all learnt and, and, and great lessons from it. That's, that's, a, that's a good time, I guess, to talk a bit about, you know, the logistics of running an event because that's what I'm, I, I run small events, you know, and so obviously touch wood, you know, there's nothing's really happened, but you know, there, there's always a possibility of some crisis, disaster, terrorism, someone having a heart attack, you know, even all these terrible things like it's, but I mean, that percentage chance is magnified exponentially when you have several thousand people doing an event. So it, it, it must be a stress running one of these events thinking like, Please, you, know, you must like breathe a sigh of relief when it's over and nothing happened. Yeah, look, it's interesting. It, it's the part of the event that I, I absolutely love. So I thrive and, you know, being in the command center on, on event day, yeah. um, run, running, you know, those kind of challenges. So, you know, Singapore Marathon as an example, 60,000 participants, 5,000 volunteers and staff, you know, shutting down a major, major city impacting hotels and even the airport to some degree and, and all sorts of other infrastructure uh, and, and, you know, challenges coming left, right and centre. And, you know, the, the briefing that I always give, we do months of training and, and simulations, tabletop exercises in terms of what can go wrong. And the final briefing that I always give to the key staff is something will go wrong. It's how we as a group respond to it that will ultimately determine our success. If we go into an event as complex as this, expecting that everything is going to go according to plan. We're going to fall flat on our faces. We don't go in looking negatively, expecting something to go wrong or wanting something to go wrong in a negative sense. But we have to be wide open, eyes wide open, to know that there, there will be a challenge of some thought. You know, one year we had a, a 40% volunteer no-show because of, of, of rain and storms and, yeah. and, and, uh, and the like. And, you know, we were redeploying staff. You know, you, you imagine, and the analogy that I often use when, when I'm talking to corporates around this, and I do more and more public speaking in this space, is, you know, imagine if you, you increased your staff headcount by 5,000 people in the space of about four months, and every one of them reported uh, for pretty much the first time within the space of a few hours on one day. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and, and you're providing their feed and they're not in an office, but they're scattered across the streets of a city and you're deploying them with buses and you're picking them up and you're communicating with them and all those kind of things. You know, so many valuable lessons that are relevant to pretty much any industry and, and size of organization, whether you're a team of, of 10 or a team of 5,000, the same principles apply in terms of, you know, clear structure, roles and responsibilities, escalation uh, protocols and procedures and hierarchy and, and, and so on. It's true. And, and what I found with, with things that go wrong is like you develop a, like I would, I'm really into SOP, standard operating procedures, but something yeah. goes wrong, you make an SOP for it. So like, I mean, in, in the kind of conferences and things I run, you know, there's a lot of things that happen, like there's no Wi-Fi, the catering doesn't come, speakers don't turn up, the venue's locked when you get there. Like, and, you, and each of these things, there's a solution, ridiculous, like impossible as it sounds, there's a solution for all these things, you know? Absolutely. Uh, and, and, when, and it's just a case of, you know, it's always a lot hard it's the hardest the first time and then you kind of, you know, get into it and, and you know, and, and things that would, it's funny because I've I got a friend who runs a couple of conferences a year and we talk about the things that stress him out and I don't even think, because I run 300 a year, I don't even, they don't even register them. I'm like, that happens all the time, every week of my life that happens. You know? And you yeah. run enough events, it, it just doesn't bother you after a while. And I guess the, the terrorism thing is, is the big thing that you mentioned is bigger now and that, that must be a big part of, especially events in cities that, you know, involve public areas and stuff. Yeah, certainly it is. And, and you know, it's, it's, again, it's, it's very much about, I believe, about collaboration. So, you know, working with city authorities and, and understanding, you know, your current threat levels and risk analysis and, uh, and, and the like. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it, it's, it certainly is, is worrying, but you have to put your plans in place. You have to have your contingencies and your crisis management and be very sure on how you communicate and, and work, work in partnership with identifying possible threats. Sure. Great. So, so Singapore, what, what was next on your globetrotting uh, career adventure? Yeah. So, you know, then a couple of years ago, 2016, 2015, I published my, my book, Mass Participation Sports Events, which was wonderful. I launched that in Singapore in 2016. I, I, I sold that business and uh, gave me the opportunity to, to move to Bali, which is wonderful. I based, based myself here with my, my, my... 
So yeah, so I'd love to jump into that, the whole sale thing. I had a really interesting interview with a guy called Steve Monnington a couple of weeks ago, and he runs a business broker for events. And he typically works with trade shows and larger events. But it's interesting to see how do you sell your event? And is this something that happens a lot in the mass participation area? Look, it's going through a, a period of consolidation. So, you know, there, uh, there was a period where Ironman was buying a lot of a lot of businesses up. You know, they bought, uh, well, Wanda out of China bought Ironman and then bought Rock and Roll Marathon out of the US and, um, you know, the, the Cape August uh, cycle event in, in South Africa, to name a few. And, and you know, they so this decided that... this is a Chinese they, group, you said? This is a Chinese China, group that China, bought all these Chinese companies? Chinese group, yeah. Right. Yeah, ma- ma- massive Chinese organization, one of the biggest property developers in China, own most cinemas around the world, which is probably unbeknownst to, to many right. people, but uh, one of the biggest cinema operators and, and, and various other other verticals. You know, they, 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 were, they were looking for a, a base in Singapore. The Singapore Marathon as the kind of jewel in the crown appealed to them. I had a team of about 30 staff and some, some assets and IP that, uh, that was of interest to them. So the, the negotiations happened and, and sold the business to Ironman, which, as I say, gave me, it gave me the opportunity. And I, you know, I was very, very fixed on my idea that I'd like to exit. I'd been in the industry a, a, a long time and I've, and I've heard you know, many stories of people that kind of get locked in for a couple of years and, you know, seldom hear happy stories around that because you've been, you know, you've been, you've been an entrepreneur having a degree of your own independence for many years and now you're reporting to a, a head office overseas and, and so on. And yes, uh, I was fortunate enough to be able to negotiate a deal where, where I, you know, pretty much, you know, handed over the, the keys. I had, a, you know, a couple of months of having to provide information and so on, but, you know, I didn't have to keep going into the office with a new boss every day and, and doing all that sort of thing, which I, you know, I'm, I'm incredibly uh, grateful for. That's interesting. Steve Mollington, the guy, you should check out the interview, actually. It was really, really interesting guy. He's broken a lot of big, big event deals. And, and he said, typically, there's an earn out period, like you said. At the very least, people would want you to stick around for the first year of the, if it's an annual event, the first year of the event, and probably sometimes even two years. So it's interesting how you got out so quick. Is, is that typical, you think? Or just they just, we just had their own way? You already had a brand name, they knew how to run marathons, that was it? No, I think, I think it was pretty unusual. But, you know, I, I had a... Uh, you know, a stable and experienced team with some senior management in it. They brought in a very experienced guy from from Australia to run the region, who's a you know fantastic guy and a great great practitioner in the industry. So so you know all all, all those things were able to align. Great, obviously, give you I imagine some some financial um, cushion as well. So actually, well, I want to jump back to one thing. Ironman's a really interesting th- thing for me because it's one of those things where you you kind of presume Ironman is like a just a, like a public name or something like like it's like it's like a you know it's a it's a double triathlon I guess or twice the length of a triathlon I think isn't it but but you know I, I didn't realize for a long time it was a private company you always just sort of presume an iron it's, an Ironman is like a word you use to describe a, a type of event yeah no look it's a, it, it is absolutely it started started in Hawaii and now obviously a global business with uh, you know different models many many events owned by them many events licensed and franchised by them around the world private company owned by this this you know now owned by this massive uh, Chinese company. No, and who, who was yeah. it started by one person, or who was behind it originally? It, it, it was it was started by by a group of guys sitting in a bar one night, saying, you know, what what, what would be the you know the ultimate event, the ultimate endurance test event. So it's you know it's a hundred and uh, hundred and eighty kilometer bike ride. It's a let me get my facts right here. Ma- massive swim and a, and a full marathon. Yeah, so you go through all that and, uh, and and then end up running a marathon at the end of it. That's, that's unbelievable. So yeah, and I mean, yeah. I know people with Iron Man tattoos and stuff. I mean, it's like that's it's right. Like yeah, cult, yeah, you know, like. yeah, yeah. It is. Yeah, yeah. So, so what, what was next then after the sale? That, that, that's really interesting how you how you did that. And that, that was must have been a career highlight, I guess, to actually you know build a company up and sell it to, to someone like Iron Man. It was wonderful. And you know, after after all those years, I was I was ready for a, a change of pace and a change of. Not, not complete direction, but just uh, nice to be able to do something at, at a different end of the spectrum now where I'm op- operating fundamentally on, on my own. So uh, I've got three main verticals to my, my new business. So I'm based in Bali, which is wonderful with my, my wife and, and little four-year-old boy, Sam, wonderful right. lifestyle for, for him. And I do advising ar- around the region. So I'm currently working on a project with ASICS, the shoe brand, on, on a concept that I actually created for them four or five years ago called ASICS Relay, which is a, 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 a basically a, an, an evolution of, 
of the concept that I started my business with out of Australia. So it's gone to a, a nighttime event with entertainment and so on. But this year it took place in five cities. So Bangkok, Jakarta, Singapore, Kuala Lumpur and, uh, and Manila. So I've been in an advisory role. They engage event organizers around the region and, and I help them just giving strategic advice and quality control and so on. And I've got a number of number of other uh, you know consulting clients. I just did a fantastic launch in Singapore last week for a new client of mine uh, out of New Zealand, a company called VeloHawk that's created this amazing premium bike storage box. And we ended up doing their their launch in uh, in the Ferrari showroom in Singapore. They, you know the premium bike storage alongside a premium car. One wonderful opportunity. So I've got a number of these these clients that I work with around the region, advising, consulting. I've then got a growing um, international speaking career. So I speak both within the industry and and then I, I'm speaking increasingly to corporates on the lessons that I've learned in mass participation that are relevant to, to, to as, I, as I said earlier, any business. And then, then I've got a, a business called Mass Participation Asia. So I founded that in, in 2015 as an annual conference to bring the industry together to promote best practice, encourage people to, to work together within the industry. And that's now got a number of other verticals. So I've just launched uh, about a week ago uh, my first mass participation masterclass, which will be uh, a year-long online program with me, you know, mentoring and, and sharing my nearly 35 years of experience with a group of 15 to 20 people. In fact, I've got my, my first webinar tomorrow to share the details of that with prospective students. Uh, and then the third edition of the conference is coming up in Singapore in December. So at this stage, you know, we've announced uh, over 40 speakers from around the world, probably end up with around about 55, probably 250 delegates. The only conference of its kind in the world that focuses on all the, the verticals of mass participation uh, with the, the, the main objective of bringing the industry together, promoting collaboration and, and, and driving best practice. And, and you know, just, just loving the opportunity to share and give back to the industry and, and, and bring people together. Great. I'm, I'm kind of, yeah, the website's massparticipationasia.com, by the way, for that. I'm just checking out the website. Yeah, I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by people running, you know, this, I heard a great phrase like a micro multinational, which kind of like, you know, you've, it's a multinational company, it's, but, you know, you're not Goldman Sachs or Pepsi Curly. You're, you're in a specific niche. You know, you're doing some consulting yourself. You're running some events, you know, these, these community things. I'm curious how you structure things. Like, do you have a full-time team or contractors? Are they, are they remote or do you have an office in Bali? Like, what's, what's the sort of actual structure for all these? Because you've got a lot of things going on. I imagine you've got a team. I'm curious, are they, are they full-time or contractors? Or how, how do you do it? Yeah, I mean, literally, I have one person based out of Singapore who delivers the conference. You know, all, all the rest of the stuff, I'm, you know, and that's what I'm loving. You know, whilst I, I had an amazing team when I sold my business to Ironman, I had 30 staff and, you know, many of them still friends. But, you know, it, it's, it's challenging running, running staff and running a business. And I'm, I'm loving the fact that I, I don't run staff anymore and I don't have the, you know, the challenges of, of every entrepreneur or most entrepreneurial businesses of cash flow and clients. And, you know, obviously yeah. I've got clients, but, you know, le less so. I've got a, you know, a fairly select small group of clients that I work for on, you know, some of them I work two days a month, some of them I work five days a month. And, you know, then my speaking takes me to different parts of the world. I was over in Austin, Texas in February, I delivered the closing keynote at Running USA, which is probably, you know, the biggest conference of its kind in our industry with about 700 delegates. I was in Melbourne two weeks ago speaking at an Australian Payroll Association conference. I'm off uh, on Sunday speaking at a conference in Bangkok and then a couple of days later in, in Ho Chi Minh in, in Vietnam and a couple of days after that in Shenzhen in China. And those are all kind of more industry related, sports related. Um, but, you know, have just this wonderful just, just, opportunity. Yeah, just jump into that. It's fascinating. It's a bit of a tangent, but I'm, you know, it's an interesting thing, the whole speaking at conferences. I presume now you're generally working as a paid speaker. I mean, do you sometimes, like, speak for free if you think there's an opportunity there? Because it's interesting. I, I always tell people, like, a lot of people can get too greedy in the beginning if they don't have a track record like you've got and just demand to be paid from day one, you know. And I always say... If, you're, if you don't have a name for yourself, you should just speak whatever you can, even if it's for free, you know, then when you can build up a name for yourself and you've got a good reference and great feedback, you, you start getting paid. I'm curious how you've approached it and, and how you approach it now. 
Absolutely. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm only probably two years into my speaking career and I still still speak for free on, on occasion, yep. um, you know, particularly if it's industry related. And, you know, the, the business model varies depending on, on who the client is. And sometimes it's a great publicity opportunity. Sometimes it's a networking opportunity. Sometimes it needs to leads to a, an advising or consulting opportunity. Yep. You're dead right, Dan, is, you know, you, you do need to put the odds in like you, like you do in, in any business and, you know, build up your portfolio build up your network and uh you know it, it varies with you know sometimes i, I pay my own way even you know yeah, it's, so yeah it's I, a, I do i know, do as well definitely yeah it's, yeah no the, the opportunity in ho chi minh is an amazing one i'm i, I last year i was invited a, a think tank a swiss-based think tank called harassus the, the guy who founded that used to work for davos and uh, and, and went away about uh, 10 or 12 years ago i think and founded harassus global and boarded to asia three years ago and i was invited to to speak in calcutta and i sat on a a panel which spoke about the future of tourism in Asia, and I gave a, a sports and mass participation perspective. And it occurred to me that sport wasn't on their agenda. So I, I approached the founder and, and said, you know, sports are a growing currency in Asia. And, you know, if you had any interest in putting sport on the agenda next year, I'd be more than happy to help you. And uh, he came back to me a couple of weeks later and asked me to help, um, you know, assemble and facilitate a sports panel at this year's conference, which is going to be in Ho Chi Minh. But, you know, every, every delegate and speaker there pays their own way. You pay your flights, you pay your accommodation. Uh, but it's this incredible, you know, last year there were 350 delegates from, I think, 67 countries. There were seven or eight government ministers there. And it was one of the most cerebral experiences I've had for years, you know, the, the caliber of people, the caliber of conversation that was happening in, in, in the, you know, there were, you know, five, five panels running in parallel. And there were times when I wanted to be at every single one of them. So, you know, you, you don't earn a cent out of that. You pay for your flights and accommodation, but you have an incredible experience and make a great network. Definitely. I mean, it's, it's one of my, one of my biggest pet peeves is like speakers who become instant prima donnas. And I have to say in advance, this is a real minority. Most people I work with are super cool and, and, and amazing. But I've worked with a few people who like, we've given a lot of people their first, we work with a lot of teachers, you know, and we do education related stuff. And a lot of yeah. people have given them their first ever keynote or their first ever session. And we've, you know, we've, we've, they've never done anything. And then I'll contact them again next year and say, hey, you know, great, we we'll can pay your expenses this year. Or, you know, and your flight and hotel, and they'll be like, my rate is this. Like, not even like, this is my rate. And I'm like thinking you're so stupid because, like, you know, you're not, you might have got that once for one conference, but for you then to speak to everyone, even the people who, who've helped you get going and say, this is my rate. And this one guy in particular I'm thinking of, I don't think he's spoken anything since, you know, because he got, he got a certain amount of money for one event. And then he had this very arrogant opinion that that was what everyone was going to pay him, you know? And I'm thinking, yeah, yeah. you know, it's, everything's about opportunity, you know? You might, you can go to an event and, and make one connection and that connection can be like, can lead to 10 other things, you know? And I've done everything. I've been paid to speak. I've spoken for free. I've, I've done a barter arrangement where I've been able to exhibit my things at, at an event. And I've just done it to help out friends, you know? Like they need, a, they need someone to help them out. And, and, and the other thing I, I always tell anyone wanting to speak as a kind of tangent is just be super helpful to the organizer, you know? You know what a hassle is running an event. If you're the guy who says let me help you with registration let me do this let me promote you know show them you're going to promote it to your network like honestly you can boost your desirability as a as a speaker just by being cool and just helping out the organizer with everything and it's amazing how many people miss this that opportunity you know yeah, look, you're so right. It's it's exactly the way that I, I focus on operating. Someone's struggling to put out the tables. I'm more than happy, you know, helping yeah. move chairs and tables and doing all that kind of stuff. And you know, I think I think that's probably a lot of that's my nature anyway. But it's also that understanding of you know, being in the event business, being there, done that. I know what it's like when something goes wrong. And if I can if I can help you to get over that and uh, and put on a great face for your delegates, why, why not? Yeah, well, the uh, chairs and tables. That, that's a that's a perfect concrete example of what you said because when we get people People at our events who just they come and, and they, they get there early and they start because it's always a last minute rush the registration desk's not ready something's not ready and just just start helping they don't just stand around vaguely say oh can I help with something they just do it and, and I, I do that myself I, any event I'm involved in I just go and help with registration because they always need help with registration or setting up the theatre or whatever you know it's just a, it's, it's absolutely the anyone yeah, who's and, thinking and look, of doing it <laughs> sorry yeah and, and one of the other things there as well is the opportunity, you know, you, you often will see speakers that will, will blow in, 
half an hour before their presentation, do their presentation, hang around for five, 10 minutes and disappear and gone. Best opportunity, however experienced you are, you can learn from other speakers, even if it's not what to do. And hanging around in the room afterwards and making yourself available to the delegates is you know, how you, how you often pick up your next job as well. Definitely. And I, and I would say as well, yeah. even more than that, like if you're a speaker, go to the networking party because that is the place you're going to meet everyone. And and it's, 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 a, it's the ideal networking situation because you've just been on stage. Everyone knows you, you know, you don't know them, but, but they, they know who you are because you've been on stage. And then that is, I mean, it's, it's, it astonishes me the amount of people who don't go to the networking party, which for me, like if you're speaking at an event, don't book a flight out the same day, you know, always stick around uh, yeah. until afterwards and maximize, right. you know, the, the value from it. Great advice. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. So, so, so that's obviously what you're doing now. It's been a real. I, I mean, I, I could just do another five interviews with you and zoom into all these different things you've done. It's, it's all fascinating to me. What? Uh, any, anything you want to plug? And anything you want to talk about in terms of things you're doing or where people can find you online? My website is is chrisrob.asia. Facebook is chrisrobasia. Yeah, we, we, we'll and, put links uh, in the yeah. show notes anywhere to all this stuff. So that, that'd be great. Thank you. And and yeah, look, I think you know anybody who's who's interested, mass participation Asia in Singapore, tenth to eleventh of of December at the Singapore Hilton, immediately after the Singapore Marathon. So you know, two reasons to come into Singapore, which is a great city. We've got amazing speakers from from all over the world, from you know lots of different elements of of, of the industry. And that one's massparticipationasia.com. Anyone's looking for a, a speaker with a unique and interesting story would, uh, would would love that opportunity and you know anyone you, you've obviously got a lot of people that are in the event industry my, you know i'm so excited about my mass participation masterclass, which I, I think i shared with you it's a you know a 12 month online program with monthly webinars um one-on-one -on -one mentoring with me frameworks uh, case studies a peer group that's going to hold you accountable to your goals for the year and then you know so excited about you know the opportunity to interact with i guess the next generation of leaders in in the mass participation industry great well just one closing question chris because I'm, I'm sure there's a few people listening to this thinking you know I, I i'm really into surfing i'm really into running i'd love to do a large mass participation event now here's the question is is this market fished out or is there still opportunity is there still a chance with the right location and the right niche to to make a lot of money and run it run a cool event or are the glory days over look i, I don't think the glory days are over the, the reality is that there's not a lot of events in, in, in that space that make a lot of money. There's a few of them that, that end up being successful hits. I think that some of the many benefits come from the impact that you're making on society. Yep. You, you know, some of the some of the biggest buzzers I get is, and, and it still happens, I get stopped in the street and someone says, thank you, Chris, you changed my life. You know, as a result of you putting on Cycle Singapore, my boss persuaded me to borrow a mountain bike and ride the 20k and, and I now ride five times a week and uh, and I'm a much better person for it or you know I, I took up marathon running to participate in the Singapore marathon or or similar um, you know that those are the buzzes it's not it's not the material stuff yeah of sure. course it's nice it's nice to have enough money to be comfortable with but you know my million dollar things are the money can't buy experiences that I've had that's true. Well, that's Not, a, the, the wealthiest man in the world or woman in the world couldn't have bought the seat that I had on the on, on the back of the lead vehicle in the Olympic marathon and being in team cars in the Tour de France and, you know, all those kind of amazing experiences that have come out of the industry are sometimes for me personally more important than the dollars in the bank account. Great. Well, that's a great way to finish. Thanks a lot, Chris, and all the best. Thank you, Dan. Wonderful speaking. Thanks for the opportunity and hope to hear you speak one day. I hope so. Cheers, man. <laughs> Thanks, man. Do you want to sell more tickets to your amazing events? EventsFrame Event Ticketing has been built to minimize the amount of time it takes to buy a ticket. Result? You sell more tickets. Check out eventsframe.com.